If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Margarita, a researcher here at the IAI. And I'm Amari, one of the producers and senior researcher at the IAI. Today we've got Ancient Traits in a Modern World, featuring Professor of Theoretical Epidemiology at the University of Oxford, Sinitra Gupta, Research Fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford, Anders Sandberg, and Philosopher of Biology, Sabrina Smith. This took place in 2023 at the How the Light Gets In Festival in Hay, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the IAI. So Amari, tell us a bit about this debate. So this debate explores whether our neurobiology is at odds with the modern world. I think one of the interesting things that you'll get from this debate is the sort of division that we have between the philosopher on the panel, Sabrina Smith, who challenges the very idea that we can know what it was like previously, what our architecture, biological structures were like, and as Sandberg, who presents a very positive case for our ability to adapt and evolve as one of the best species that ever, ever existed, and who are already enjoying the benefits of this new world that we've created. Against a sort of scepticism of Sinetra Gupta, who thinks that very much like the lion waiting in the bush, we all are anxious about it because of the structures in our brains. Amazing. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But remember, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Let's now hand over to our host for this debate, Gnesh Taylor. Welcome, 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 everybody. Welcome to day one of How the Light Gets In. We are here this evening to discuss ancient traits in a modern world. So we see the remarkable evolution of the human brain as one of the driving factors behind our success as a species. Our neurobiology evolved, though, to solve challenges in a drastically different world to the one that we find ourselves in today. Might our evolved traits, once advantageous, now be our Achilles heel? For human aggression, inventiveness, and a determination to overcome enemies, once evolutionarily effective, now actually risk resource, technology, and nuclear crises, each with the potential to bring our species to an end. 
So is our Paleolithic hardware no longer equipped for the contemporary world we have helped to create? Can we find ways to change our behavior before it is too late? Alternatively, should we see it as inevitable that all species become extinct and our turn may be closer than we imagine? Or is this all misguided and evolution has dealt us a brilliant hand to cope with the challenges of the 21st century life? So to help us address this, our wonderful speakers, we have Sunetra Gupta, who is an acclaimed novelist, novelist, excuse me, essayist, and also scientist. She's currently professor of theoretical epidemiology at the University of Oxford. She has won many esteemed awards, including the Scientific Medal by the Zoological Society of London and the prestigious Royal Society Rosalind Franklin Award for her research. Sabrina Smith is one of the most exciting philosophers of biology uh, out there who challenges our assumptions about human behavior. Smith is currently Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of New Hampshire. Anders Sandberg is a leading transhumanist and a research fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford, where his research focuses on the societal and ethical issues surrounding human enhancement and new technologies. So I hope you agree. We have three fabulous uh, panelists to help us tackle this question. And as per usual, um, uh, how the light gets in format, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite each one of our speakers to um, address a question in three minutes and set up their perspective. And then going on, we'll have a, a nice conversation, if that's OK with you. So the question is, is our neurobiology inadequate to deal with the challenges of the 21st century? Sunetra, you have three minutes. I would say one of the neurobiological aspects, one of the ways that we are wired, is that we love a good story. And this has obviously evolved from when we were sitting around a campfire in a cave and trying to reassure each other that you know we were safe, um, trying to create a form of a coherence, a social coherence, and, and of safety. And this storytelling urge has, of course, now reached, you know, has transmitted through these ages. And so we are wired to tell good stories. But does this have pitfalls? Well, indeed it does, because there is such a thing as narrative fallacy, whereby our addiction to good stories can actually cause us to dismiss facts and, and to sort of stick to something that we find comfortable, something that we all agree upon, something that endorses the consensus. And so that's one of, um, that's a, for me, uh, something I've just talked about, an example of where uh, something that we're hardwired to do actually can lead to the development of what I call a doxa, which is a story that you can't challenge. Um, and I think that has serious problems. Another exa good example of what the kind of wiring, hard wiring that um, happened during these periods where we uh, you know, had a very different lifestyle is that it was, again, hugely adaptive to be able to signal to you, members of your tribe that you would do the right thing, that you weren't going to take the antelope that you'd just killed and run off with it. So. There was tremendous value to signaling your virtue. And that now, of course, has transmuted into um, a way that, that, well, something which is 
both valuable but also has its downsides in the same way that storytelling is obviously still a valuable attribute but has its downsides. And so, of course, signaling virtue has uh, many downsides and these are not inconsiderable as uh, we've seen, uh, particularly well, in, in various forms, but certainly in the last three years during the, the, as the pandemic unfolded. So I think there are these social traits. So I'll just leave it with those two, storytelling and um, signaling virtue, both of which can, on the one hand, be good in that storytelling is the fundamental way in which we transact you know, our interactions. Um, it's a fundamental way in which we live our lives. Uh, signaling virtue or reassuring people, of, uh, or at least can become, can be uh, uh, the currency of empathy, which is a good thing, but it can also be performative and have other downsides. So I think most of our neurobiology has upsides and downsides, but those are two, Perfect. just two examples. Perfect. Thank you so much. Um, Sabrina, what, what, what do you think? Is our neurobiology inadequate to deal with the challenges of the 21st century? So um, the first thing to note is that in the belly of that question, there is a presupposition. And that presupposition is that we have facts about contemporary human, our contemporary neurobiology, and we have facts about the neurobiology of our ancestors some 200, 300,000 years ago. Those are empirical claims. Those are empirical claims that we can put to the test. It turns out we actually do not have facts available to us about what precisely the biological constitution of our ancestors were. We have and do make inferences based on certain kinds of preferences that we have. I'm smiling because the sorts of inferences, even amongst scientists uh, uh, that we find, are inferences that accords very often with already uh, presuppositions that they already have. So if you believe that there is a link, an unbreakable link, between the neurobiological structures installed in our ancestors that gave rise to the psychology that they had, that allowed them to perform as well as they performed, and we know they performed well because we are the recipients of their having done so. But we don't know the facts of how they performed. But if you already believe that there has been an unbroken connection between them and us, then it's very easy to make the inference that our neurobiology is ill-equipped to the contemporary world. I see nothing. I'm not a neurobiologist. I'm a philosopher of biology. But there is no evidence that I know of that tells us anything about the facts of our ancestors' psychology. We do know that our ancestors did some very successful things. And we here are doing some very successful things. Here's the thing to note. Evolution is disinterested with our projects, but we are interested in our projects. We have tools, cognitive, psychological tools, 
to fashion the kind of world that we want to fashion. And insofar as the ways in which we're doing living is inconsistent with the lives of our ancestors, it's not because we have facts that tell us so. It's because we hypothesize that it's likely that they wouldn't have done those things. So it's an open question. Where do we stand? It's an open question whether our neurobiology, contemporary human uh, neurobiology, is ill-equipped for the contemporary world. Because that view presupposes that that neurobiology was laid down for an ancient world and therefore cannot function in this world. To my mind, we are functioning. To my mind, our biology, our neurobiology is serving us. So the argument needs some more connections. From our ancestors to us, we need to connect some more threads. Fabulous. Anders. Oh, we're getting a positive. Yeah, look at that. All right. Anders, what, what do you think? Are we? Hmm? I think I, I really like the way Sabrina laid it out here. But at the same time, I think we can go even deeper than our neurobiology to think about basic biology to see that at least there are some mismatches. <clears throat> so when I'm sitting here and looking at all your faces, my blood pressure goes up. I get adrenaline pumping through my veins. This uh, leads to a faster blood clotting. It's very effective if I needed to run away from a tiger. It's less useful for being entertaining on a stage in a panel and making witty remarks and actually answering questions well. Because in particular, that higher arousal level is making my brain typically go into a stimulus response mode. It's easier to come up with something deep when you're really relaxed and when you can think creatively about it. However, my adrenal glands and that system was probably set up for situations that my ancestors had to deal with running away from a lot of stuff for a very long time. Today, I rarely run away from uh, big uh, dangerous animals. I mostly run towards buses. That's the closest I get to, to that situation. And even that, I could probably have used my phone to notice that I should have left a bit earlier or take a later bus. What's going on is I'm not exactly matched here. And that high blood pressure is, of course, going to do rather bad things to my you know, overall body over time if I don't control that. This is a kind of mismatch. It's not a mayor one. But there are others that might be more disturbing. It might be, for example, that we develop tendencies towards cruelty, uh, to take pleasure in somebody else's misfortune, to make it a little bit easier uh, to police each other. Because as a group, we need to enforce our norms. We actually need to punish people who go against the norms to make it less likely that people break the norms. That is generally not nice if it's somebody you know. But at the same time, it might be, and I think this is a guess and it might not even be true. You could imagine that evolution found this mutation that sometimes you take a delight in punishing the wrongdoer. Ha <laughs> ha. But that's not a good moral emotion. Cruelty has created some of the most horrible things ever. It can become very maladaptive. And I think we have a lot of luggage like that. Things that made sense in some societies, not necessarily in some remote environment of evolutionary adaptation that didn't exist, but maybe even earlier, later. Uh, it might be very well that we inherited some things from the early part of agriculture, some things from uh, the early Iron Age. And then, of course, we laid on top of a lot of culture. So I think. We can quite often find that when we want to make things better, uh, we might ask, why didn't nature give us that? 
and sometimes it's just because the trade-offs have changed. Uh, we could probably afford today to have bigger, more energy-intensive brains than we have all to have, simply because in the past, food was scarce. Now we have an opposite problem. And we could imagine that once the trade-offs change, you might really want to modify this. And some of the trade-offs, like nuclear weapons and existential risk from technology, are very different from the trade-offs that would have faced us as a small tribe in, uh, on the savanna. There are also some things that evolution simply can't do. Making bones out of diamond or radio transmitters, that's not something we can ask evolution to. But most importantly, we do have different goals from evolution. Uh, I might want uh, to spend time researching and doing things rather than having a lot of kids. And uh, I might want to uh, use uh, contraceptives, which is from an evolutionary standpoint rather a bad thing, but uh, from my personal human perspective, a good thing. So I do think we have a bit of divergence in many respects, not all, by no means all, from ev what evolution wants. And evolution is pretty heartless. <laughs> Actually, Anders, thank you so much for raising the point of evolution. So that was kind of going to be my first theme in this context. So as you said, there's assumptions being made here about what the role of evolution is and some idea that we are, we are at its mercy, but also that we've left it behind. So the first theme was, uh, well, you might tell me it's an assumption, but I mean, it is, right? Human beings have ascended past the point of evolutionary pressures Obviously, we use contraceptives, we have C-sections, we have modern medicine and technologies. We seem to have this narrative of having left evolution behind. And does that, that sort of leads us to a place where we feel we must rely upon technologies to continue sort of curating the cultures that we live in and the world that we live in and our bodies within that. That's the sort of direct relationship that's at least presented to us, right? human beings are beyond evolution, therefore we are responsible for what we do. Is that something that, that you would agree with? This sort of idea that evolution's, we're out of the grasp of evolution now. No, I... Uh, Excellent, I don't tell me so. more. I don't think so. um, evolutionary forces utilizes the raw materials available to fashion organisms. If the raw materials are organisms like us, with the, all the accoutrements that we have in the modern world, then our evolutionary trajectory will be as they eventuate, right? So we typically tend to think of evolution as sort of natural and raw and brute and sort of I say to my students, I say, it's sort of ooga-booga-ish. It's not fancy, it's really primitive, people lived in caves, et cetera, et cetera. But that's, that's vulgar evolution. All that's required is that new organisms are born, traits are laid down on account of new organisms being born, organisms die, organisms leave their environment and dissipate elsewhere. It doesn't matter what the conditions are, as long as you have reproductive uh, uh, events taking place. That's sufficient. That's sufficient for evolution to take place. Now, 
We're not like our ancestors 200,000 years ago, 300,000 years ago. We're not like them in many respects. We know this, not because we have the facts. It's simply because we know, well, we do have some facts. We have facts of the sort. They didn't live in buildings with um, uh, um, right angles. Uh, we, uh, when we uh, excavated the fossil record, we found no buildings, right? We found no medicines, uh, no manufactured pills for uh, depression, et cetera, et cetera. So we have some sense of the sort of ways in which their lives were constricted, were delimited. The fact that our lives are more shiny, more pretty, et cetera, et cetera, does not mean that we have left them behind. It means that we have become the version of ourselves given the resources that we have available to us. Is evolution sting acting on us? You better believe it. We should expect uh, the new people uh, 200,000, 300,000 years from now to look back and to say strange things about us who inhabited this time. So evolution won't stop, all else being equal, if we don't do the sorts of things that will decimate organic matter from, from the planet. All things considered, evolutionary uh, forces, selection will continue, new organisms will come about, and they will have to do so on the basis of what is made available to them. So if it turns out that women, for instance, female human beings who birth children, uh, after a certain period of time, stop birthing children and are, for the most part, having C-section, then there will be a difference in the reproductive events in the future. But that doesn't mean that evolution will stop. It means that evolution will have to act on those differences. That's fascinating. So, Sinatra, what, what's your feeling on this? Is, well, is, evolution, is, evolution occurs through... Well, well, specifically, actually, not just the story, actually. This is what I think about this. It's, is it a story or is it the truth that we have left evolution behind? And does our story regarding our relationship with evolution perhaps need to change? Is that... To, to understand that, uh, as Sabrina is saying, you have to think about what do you mean by evolution? As an evolutionary biologist, I think of evolution as natural selection. So there is variation and there is selection for those who are better at surviving and particularly at reproducing. That's, it's very straightforward in that sense. And those selective forces have changed, without a doubt. Uh, nonetheless, so evolution, that sort of selection will only occur when there is a lot of competition. And the scale at which it occurs, it depends on the generation time. So for us, evolution occurs very slowly. And as Sabrina said, it's very hard to document. One of the few examples we have of evolution having occurred in the human species is the rise in sickle cell anemia in parts of Africa. And this was specifically selected for by malaria. Malaria, sickle cell anemia, protects you against death from malaria. It's a very strong selective force, and it's caused a rise in frequency of sickle cell. But when we talk about you know, the uh, narratives being hardwired to love good stories or uh, to sig virtue signal, we are speculating to a very high level, and that's exactly what you highlighted. Uh, but, you know, all of these events in humans occur on a very short time scale. If you look at pathogens, 
You give them antibiotics, within five years, you've got antibiotic-resistant um, bacteria. Uh, so these things happen on a different time scale. And for humans, and, and are very complex, and that's exactly what you're saying. They're complex, they're hard to document, and provided there's competition, someone is going to win. And so that is what we're seeing as evolution is really just a continuous race amongst people with diverse abilities and those things that are under different selection pressures. When you start having C-sections, then you know people like me are still here to, to talk about um, evolution, uh, whereas both I and my two daughters probably have died um, without C-sections being available. But does that mean that's actually changed the human race? Or, I don't know how to use that word. Um, you know, have we really, is that, in what way has that affected evolution? Has it, which traits has it actually affected? Um, maybe we've got bigger brains now because obviously birth was one of the big constraints to having bigger brains. But those things will take a long time to play out. We're talking about a multidimensional landscape in which selection is acting. So it's very difficult to make it's simplistic, should I say, and I think that's what we're all saying, to just say we are post-evolution. The natural forces of selection have been altered, but that does not mean that we aren't evolving. So I would agree that uh, the, the selective pressure on humans have been reduced a lot because we have been working very hard to make healthcare better, to save each other from various things that would have selected against many kinds of people. And I think we are rightly doing so and we're going to keep on pushing that. But that means that there are going to be other selection pressures. Uh, after all, there are probably some genes that predispose you towards playing in traffic. And they are selected against, since the invention of cars, relatively strongly. So if nothing else changes, we should expect over a bunch of generations to get people to be a bit more careful in traffic. In practice, of course, this is not going to happen because traffic is going to change. Maybe we get autonomous cars. Maybe we figure out better ways of transportation. So actually, the selection pressures given by human culture change so rapidly that the biological and genetic evolution can't keep up. Of course, as a transhumanist, I immediately say, yeah, but we can start adding stuff. We can uh, make ourselves, in some sense, cultural artifacts. We could uh, not just select ourselves, but even more importantly, maybe add genes or modify things. But even that doesn't necessarily get to the full width of evolution, because Survival of the fittest is really a kind of tautology. It means really survival of the survivors. Whoever reproduces well is going to be more common in the future. So we couldn't imagine some kind of wildly utopian world where nobody dies. Uh, in that world, who is going to become the dominant group of people? Well, the ones that reproduce most for whatever reason. I have some friends who are really worried that in the future we're all going to become Catholics or Mormons or Hutterites because they have a lot of kids. And I usually reassure them, look, have you seen how many people in those groups who leave and get different views? Because as humans, we also change our minds. Maybe over really long periods of time, we even evolved to have fixed religious identities. But that's a pretty the bizarre scenario and assumes that nothing really changed. And that is, of course, not never true for us humans. We have enough of a frontal lobe, enough ability to change our behavior, and also enough 
weird complexity that emerged from our interactions to keep this rather interesting. The problem is, of course, rather interesting can be very much in the sense of that infamous uh, Japanese, Chinese saying, may you live in interesting times, because many of the emergent behaviors we do can produce pretty devastating effects for ourselves and the planet. Uh, again, we might say maybe we want to evolve bigger brains and be better able to solve things, but we need those brains now-ish rather than in a few millennia. Hmm. Now that's interesting. So I'm already getting the sense that you kind of all agree that we haven't actually left evolution behind, which is at least a newsflash to, to, to me or the program writers, because I, I do think <laughs> that that's generally the sort of vibe, right, that we talk about. So you're all saying we don't actually have to change our bodies, right? There's nothing to overcome. It's all happening. We're still within the cradle of evolution. But should we be using technology to continue changing our environment or should we be looking at changing our bodies to make the kind of adaptions that we want to make? I mean, the reality is, fair enough, evolution might still be happening, but we do have technologies that can alter outcomes, reproductive outcomes, and therefore we do have a bit of a, we have a bit more of a strong and cognizant grasp on the wheel of evolution, let's say. So even if we haven't left it behind, how should we be turning that steering wheel? Should we be turning it? Should we be turning it using external technologies? In, in the worlds that we create. Like for example, we talked about reproductive stuff, right? Contraception, C-sections, things like that. They are societal, environmental changes that we've, we've manifested, right? So should we be doing those? Or should we actually be leaning more into, for example, addressing the physical stuff that Anders was talking about, like you know, tuning, tuning human bodies to be less uh, cortisol sensitive, less stressed, say, for example, or using those kinds of technologies. What are your, your feelings on that? Do, do we continue changing things? Do we not? I see no reason why we shouldn't. Of course, not all changes are good, right? So uh, I think we have to decide as a society what kind, what kind of world do we want to live in? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. And then we go about and we design the world in accord with our preferences. Um, there's sort of a, a kind of category uh, issue going on with, with respect to the question. Because on the one hand, the questions are about sort of individual preferences and individuals doing stuff. And on the other hand, the question is also about evolutionary um, consequences, right? Um, we know that when we talk about evolution, we ought always to be talking about population because evolution is only ever applicable to populations of organisms. So it's entirely possible that uh, all of us in here could change ourselves in radical ways and it has no consequence for the human species because what's required for evolution to continue, it's not, it doesn't require all of us to reproduce. It requires enough reproductive events. And so all of us here could decide we're going to get rid of our reproductive parts. And evolution of the human species will not be affected. So we want to sort of set aside the individual preferences and pursuits that people might have from the populational uh, consequential stuff that can result in evolutionary uh, um, changes. And we might ask ourselves, do we want to be fundamentally different as human beings? And therefore, uh, do we want to institute the kinds of policies that will steer our evolutionary path in particular directions? Now, 
I don't know if we would be successful, frankly. I think even then, evolution is tethered to us coming along and it will just roll with us. But I think the question framed at the populational level is more applicable, is, is the proper way we need to frame it if we're gonna talk about evolution. If we're not interested in you know, laying down the laws for all of us to do stuff, then it really doesn't matter if individual ones of us decide to live our lives a certain way. I don't think we can steer evolution. I think it's hubristic to think that we can steer evolution. I don't know that it's desirable. I think we should act on principles of compassion rather than um, thinking about where are we heading. Um, at the moment, some of these technologies um, are really, you know, when they're best harnessed, do that. They reduce human suffering. And I think that it's important to acknowledge that evolution is so complex that where we will be um, as a species in thousands of years is, is something that we cannot control, uh, or in the sense that we don't even, we can't even anticipate where we'll go. And it's trumped anyway, for me anyway, uh, it, it is trumped by considerations of who is suffering now. And, the, and that's where we harness technology to solve those problems. We're not going to say, oh, you know what, I'm going to deny, um, I'm going to stop C-sections because uh, you know, I've made a mathematical model and that shows that in uh, 300 years' time, well, brains will be too big and the heads will start falling off. Um, so you're not going to do that because we want, we have our primary desire, and I, I think, you know, <laughs> there is a deontological basis. To, we want to be compassionate. We want to reduce human suffering. So I think in that context, oh, can we... Which is not to say that we shouldn't look to the future of the planet, but in terms of can we mold ourselves as a species to be, you know, able to tackle the next um, crisis is, um, well, just a bit hubristic. Well, I'm generally in favor of hubris quite often, so I, I'm, uh, I think it, for it. it's worth doing. At least some of us should be trying it, and then the rest of you can check, was that a good idea? <laughs> oh, no, absolutely not. Or, oh, let's borrow that. That was not hubris at all. We were believers in that all along. But the tricky part here is, of course, Thinking about the current people, I completely agree we need that compassion. We also need to care about future generations. And I, I am very much of a long-termist. I think the long-term future of humanity matters. But I'm not certain I care much about the long-term future of the human species. We could, tonight, right now, decide we inside this tent are going to only reproduce with each other. We're going to form our own species. Okay, that and took we're a really weird turn, I have to say. Yep, um, yep, yep. <laughs> Uh, but imagine that we also manage to convince our kids, uh, etc., to keep on doing it. Eventually, we would speciate for no particular other reason than creating kind of uh, a homo and uh, how the light gets in us. Uh, now, that is something we, in principle, could do. We're not, fortunately, not going to do it. Or maybe sadly, I don't know. But uh, the, the part is, yes, that genetic divergence, what moral value does it really have? And doesn't seem to have that much value. But I do care about the idea that ideas, culture, human values, and compassion, and many of the beautiful things we have, have 
which originated because of evolution in its normal form, continue very, very, very far in the future. And that might require infrastructures of advanced technology. That might be involved in genetic engineering and uploading into computers and all the other fun stuff I like to think about. But it doesn't have that much to do with the species. Uh, and I think actually caring too much about the biological species quite often is dangerous and misleading. Uh, the fun part is, of course, that this thinking is a very separate form of evolution. It's the evolution of our ideas, our ways of uh, running our culture, and we can change that. Uh, a person's life can be changed by a single sentence somebody tells them that makes them realize, oh, I was wrong, I should be going in this direction instead. That never happens with animals. That is kind of a unique thing with our species, and we want to treasure that and hone it and probably be good at uh, understanding what sentences we ought to listen to and which one we ought to discard, etc. That aspect, I think, is getting closer to what we really want to go into the far future. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a moment to go back to that first question for a second here. Now, I should say, I don't think I've told the audience, but I'm, I'm a biologist, I'm a developmental biologist and a reproductive biologist, but this is totally not my area. My interpretation of this question was also loaded, but I thought it was to do with this idea that we are the anxious ape, right? That somehow our biology is no longer compatible, as Anders was saying, with, with the world that we're creating. And, and I think, I think I want to ask, completely going off script here, I want to ask you both, all of you, a question, which is, do you, do you think that compassion and violence is innate to human beings? Like, is that something that is, because my interpretation of this question is, our, is our neurobiology inadequate to deal with the challenges of the 21st century to me means, Oh, I'm I'm a human being. I'm a Homo sapiens. I can't control the fact that I have violent, like I have violence in me, right? I have violence in me, and therefore I am, or anxiety within me, and therefore I'm no longer I'm maladapted to the environment that we have created, and then all these other questions follow, which is okay. So should I be changing myself, or should I be changing the environment? But can I just go back to the premise and ask, do you actually believe that we have these tendencies? ingrained in us and if so what does that mean for for what we've been discussing here innate yeah is, is not a term that appears in my idiolect and i teach a course and i try to get it out of my students uh, and and that's because it's a very um it's a very simply slippery notion um we tend to mean something roughly like we've acquired some capacity, some disposition, it was laid down, it's non-malleable, doesn't matter what we do, we can't help it, it's there, and it will manifest whatever we try to do. I don't really understand that. Um, and when I speak to biologists, um, the biologist friends that I have, they think that that notion is bankrupt. We can talk about developmental processes, for instance, that will eventuate all else being equal in a particular kind of organism. But the business of being an organism is contingent. There are all these contingent factors that organisms face during their developmental traje trajectories. So whatever the body plans are, those plans might be steered one way or the other. 
And so this notion of innate, that vulgar notion of innate, just doesn't seem to comport with the facts of biology. Now, if the question is, do I think that human beings can and do do violence? Clearly we do, we're successful at it, right? So we have a taste for it, you might say. We have the disposition, we have the wetware, we can do it and we have been doing it. It's also the case that we should suppose that our ancestors were not kumbayaing with each other, that they too likely engage in what we might call violent actions. How badly things went, we don't know, because we weren't there. So the fact that we can do those things is consistent with us being biological systems. It's a different issue, though, whether we want to say that we can do them says something about selection forces. And right there, I think I'm getting off the bus. I don't want to get on the bus to talk about uh, selection for traits, good or bad, um, simply because these traits are, for some reason, important to us. I want to try and trace, to the extent that I can, whether we can provide a robust biological story for claiming, for saying that this particular trait was under selection. What I will say is that we have this thing, this wetware, that allows us to do all sorts of crazy stuff, as well as really good stuff. It's the stuff that we can do. Biology, evolution gave that to us, but I don't think it means that evolution meant for us to be killers, harmers, or lovers. I actually don't think so. I'm going to agree with that entirely. Uh, I see violence, empathy, compassion, all these things as part of the human condition. Uh, and even though I'm an evolutionary biologist, when I want to understand them, I watch A Clockwork Orange. I don't go and start passing the human genome or looking for, you know, what might have happened or uh, reading the various and just so stories there are about how this is adaptive uh, and that is not. So I completely agree that, you know, there, because what's important for us is to understand violence. What, what do we do about it? It is clearly innate in the, in, not in the sort of genetic sense, but it is there, and, and we need to deal with that. And what's the best way to deal with that? And I don't think it, trying to trace its evolutionary, um, you know, its genealogy is necessarily, it is more useful than watching Clockwork Orange. So that's one thing I want to say, so I'm just agreeing with you and saying it differently. The other thing I want to bring up is this notion of being maladapted and, and trying to minimize that. All organisms are maladapted. There's nothing wrong with being maladapted. That's what we are, that's what we always will be. Uh, the human condition is about dealing with being maladapted. So I think it's, um, I think one has to accept being maladapted um, and to deal with that through poetry and art and um, I, th I think that's yeah. that's my position. I mean that's, that's really interesting but I kind of want to be like but surely there's nothing about human beings that indicates that we are acceptors 
surely the fact that we are sat in a plastic tent in a field with lights and electricity indicates that there's something also about rejecting that maladaption or trying to fight against no, it. No, we want to do better. Right. We want to do improve the human condition. Right. And that's why I said we should be guided by compassion. Right. But it's not because we want to be better adapted, as it were. Right. It's, it's a sort of... You know, it's a sort of determinism, okay. a false determinism. Yeah, yeah. I get that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but at the same time, when we try to do that, we introduce new interesting problems. At least I'm having problems with the glare from the lamps. It's very good for you, but it's kind of annoying my eyes. Okay, I can imagine a new little maladaption. I want to have an eyes that can handle that or something. But or that's we could just a minor... get rid of the lamps. Yeah, exactly. I'm trying. <laughs> but, so there are ways around it. And that is something we do quite often using our thinking and our plasticity. But when we get to violence, it's interesting to notice, yes, even small kids lash out. But when we teach them, that's bad. Would you like the other kids doing that to you in the, in the playpen? And gradually, they might even hopefully learn this. And gradually, we learn how to control our violent impulses. We might learn our compassion and refine that in various ways. The problem I see with human violence is actually the violence of lashing out is kind of okay. It's individually potentially dangerous when you're close to another person. But the kind of violence we do as a species on the entire populations, that's super dangerous. But it's generally not done in a mode of lashing out with strong activation in amygdala and then midbrain aggression centers. Instead, it's going to be done by a cold calculation of our geopolitical interests. Are we really supporting that side or that side? Let's do some game theory here, and that's where we put the nukes. At that point, you get a very different approach. It's no longer violent in a sense. It's maybe just pure calculation. Quite often, I think there are interesting emotions in the background. A lot of international relations is explained in terms of prestige. Different countries deeply want to have high prestige, which is very strange because while we individually feel rewarded when we're feeling that we're high in the social status, it's less obvious that we can do this as an entire country. Yet that seems to be a pretty powerful explanation of what happens in international policy. And that then leads to people taking rational steps to safeguard the natural interest. And that's why we get mutual assured destruction, where discussions about literal doomsday bombs are not entirely off the table, but a little bit too expensive for the US and Soviet military budget in the 1960s to pursue. It was good enough with intercontinental ballistic missiles. That's a very weird situation. Here, instead of some maniac wanting to lash out and destroy the world, getting the world close to destruction. It was people trying to safeguard national interests. That is a part where I think we might want to do better. But we probably need to do better, not just by compassion, but better kinds of game theory and incentives to get the sensible leaders and ways of running our big societies. I feel like that comes back to your point, though, about stories. Like human human beings are are often portrayed as this, you know, the violent ape. It's not just modern politics. It's you know Neanderthals. We outcompeted them, right? Supposedly, that was the narrative for many years that we killed. We them. didn't deliberately outcompete them. They just didn't do as well. 
<laughs> okay, but my point is like a lot, one of the. I mean, that very academic. I enjoyed that. Um, but but one of the the narratives is that you know human beings. This is sort of interfaces to what I was saying about the violence point. The idea is somehow that human being, or the, one of the popular narratives about humans and human success has been their violence is the root of their success. Right? It's we outcompeted the Neanderthals. We did better. We won. We we removed them. We, so of course now there's work to show that there was interbreeding and whatnot and all this sort of thing. But this idea also that you're saying about, you know, how human beings do violence can be very different, whether it's on the personal scale of violence. When we say violence, we think, you know, I hit you, I kill you, I do these things. But human beings do violence upon other species in very different ways. And actually, in what you said, even, we just did better than them. What is better? What is better, you know, in, in the sense we left of... more offspring. OK, so we, we reproduce better than them. Yes. OK, we had a better time. Resisted bugs better. Numbers we, game. Evolution. Yeah. Numbers game. But maybe also, mm -hmm. you know, maybe we did better at getting food. Maybe we yes, were better absolutely. hunters. Maybe we used other species better. And I think in this sort of last little section, I'm curious to see how you you all think about this idea of the, the violence that human beings kind of do upon other species on the planet, whether that's you know, well, no, that's animals, right? Animals, plants, other things. How do we, you, you touched upon this in your last point, Anders, like how do we, how do we address that? And, and is there an argument for, it can't be helped, that's what human beings do? I think it can't be helped that we have been doing it in the past, but now we should try to know better. That's going to take a while to become better at it. I actually do think that just because we're ecologically super successful right now, I mean, in our weight class, we're the most common uh, large animal on the planet. Uh, domestic animals outnumber uh, all the other invertebrates on land, etc. So in some sense, yeah, right, we're winning the evolutionary race here, at least for the time being. But I think many of us feel like, uh, actually, we feel compassion for the animals. Actually, factory farming seems to produce a lot of uh, pain and suffering. Maybe we should, instead of valuing things in terms of maximizing the number of offspring, we might say, okay, let's keep the case strategy and having better offspring and better lives, making sure that there is more welfare and more well-being of this planet, not just for us, but for others. At this point, evolution might say, oh, wait a minute, that's kind of a stupid strategy, you know, you could have many more offspring. But we might say, yeah, we actually want to handle this our way now, evolution, thank you. Uh, we actually might want to have a planet where there is less violence. Why? because we think it's immoral, partially because of our evolved compassion, partially because cultural ideas, and, uh, like reflecting and thinking that there is maybe a, a thing like being a cow or a, a chicken, and they don't seem to have great lives in many cases, so maybe we should actually do something about that. So I do think we can become better. That's not necessarily evolving better in a genetic sense, but maybe in a cultural uh, sense, in the structures we construct. Some of them are technological, some are a lot of them are just ideas and stories. So I think that more than violence, the real problem we face is greed. And greed, I think, is a form of natural selection, uh, which I would categorize as uh, sort of runaway, uh, classic example is runaway sexual selection, where you start growing bigger and bigger antlers and trying to attract your mate, and you, you end up with what I call grotesque outcomes. And greed is a grotesque outcome 
I think, that we've witnessed, which could be explained within the sort of natural selection framework. And a lot of what we're seeing, which becomes, translates as cruelty, and you know, it's, it appears to endorse or derive from the innate, whatever kind of innate, violence in human, it is actually just a manifestation of greed. And how did greed evolve? I mean, I, I think greed has evolved as a form of runaway sexual, I mean, that kind of selection. But that selection has actually played out at the level of, of markets rather than genes. So I think that we should be, the model of natural selection does apply to the, our current situation, but some, the, the actual unit of natural selection is possibly not the gene. I think that's really an interesting point. But the, the questions about the neurobiology thing, so I want to push you here. Like, do you, so is being greedy, having greed, part of being human? Is it hardwired in? Is it, is it not surely an extension of a natural impulse to take what you need to survive? Qu quite possibly, and that's why it has to be attenuated and checked by the social contract itself. So that's why we need to teach children not to be greedy, that, that, in, in, that you will do better on average if you, instead of being greedy, you, you engage in this sort of, in a social structure that regulates your greed. It might also be that in an environment of scarcity, there is no reason not to uh, try to amass resources if they're around, because it's so rare that you get too much resources. But if there was no evolutionary pressure to put a limiter for that. There are kind of maybe physical things about satiety in the stomach. Then we got culture needed to evolve cultural ways of kind of cutting down the greed so we could share things in the tribe. But I, I think evolution might just not have bothered adding any stop for the greed. It's a little bit like aging. Evolu there was never really a reason for evolution to do something about aging, because very few people survived to old age. So there was no selection pressure there. Building an organism is a very expensive business, right? Evolution could not and cannot afford to lay down traits for every possible contingent ways that human beings could be. And I'm inclined to say, you know, sure, we practice greed. We are capable of being terrible with our greedy habits. Um, it's something that we do successfully. Um, I don't know whether I would want to say it's an evolved tendency that it was specifically selected for. What I would say is that the conversation here is making me think that there is sort of a tension between the ground of evolution, the ground of biology, and the sort of values that human beings have and would like to have. And sometimes these are not compatible because for evolution to continue, all you need is new organisms, numbers game. It's a numbers game. And it doesn't matter how they come about. They could come about through terrible means. Um, but of course, we have values, we have preferences, and we think that some things are not on the table. The problem of killing, you talked about killing, is something that we cannot get away from. We have to kill, as a matter of fact in order that we can continue to stay in homeostasis. We kill animals, we, we kill plants. Plants are murdered by us, and we must in order that we survive. And it just doesn't seem as if this is a, a we could possibly, we could come up with a possible solution for this predicament we find ourselves in. So sure, the facts about 
biology and evolution and what's required are sort of brute and objective and out there. And then there are some facts about how we want to live as human beings. And some of those facts, if we build our lives on the basis of those facts, it means that we would have to change our practices. And I think that that too is consistent with us being evolved creatures. Can we please thank our incredible panel for their time. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.